This morning we continue our sermon series, uh, pausing our study of the book of Ephesians on justice, race, and the Bible. And in this series, we're at the midway point, the third message, we have two main goals we're trying to accomplish. One, to equip the saints to think biblically, soberly, justly, rightly, through the many claims, moral claims, charges being made today, that we might neither go along with unbiblical thinking nor simply ignore the process entirely and not work through it. Now, when people are crying out, claiming injustice, claiming wickedness, claiming sin, we need to hear those, work through those, process those biblically. Um, And so the first few messages in the series focus primarily on equipping us to do that. Message number one, judge with just judgment, looking at the biblical standard of evidence required to make moral condemnation and judgments. Um, The second message, Pastor Daniel last week, looking at the distinction between inequity or inequality, particularly of outcome, and justice and injustice, and and looking at those things. Um, This week, we're turning now to consider uh, what aspects of the claims being made, that what's going on in the culture around us are worthy of our consideration, ought we to look at. This morning in particular, we're going to consider confronting the sin of racism. Um, racism is a is hype of sin. It's not a category the Bible uses. But I think we can try to narrow down focus on this, that much of what our culture hates and abhors in racism, we would amen and agree biblically. So we're going to look at this issue, and the, and the purpose of this study is not to look out at structures and systems. You, you can do that biblically equipped. Rather, sin begins in the heart. And so I would encourage all of us this morning to ask that the Lord would reveal our hearts, that if there is any racism, as we'll define it, any evil thing in our hearts, that it would come to light, that we might confess it, repent of it, that we might um, be faithful to God. That's the purpose this morning. So join me in a word of prayer and we'll, we'll begin. Lord God, um, judgment needs to begin with the house of the Lord. And so we pray that you would examine our hearts, that you would expose any evil way in them. Lord, sin can be so deceitful, so subtle, so pernicious, and its effects can be devastating on others. So Lord, give us clarity of thought, give us understanding that we might judge ourselves with sober and right judgment, that we would take upon ourselves whatever guilt is our due, that we would not take upon ourselves false guilt. Help us to judge rightly, to see clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. On this particular topic, I found, Pastor Daniel found John Piper's book, Bloodlines, most helpful. I'm going to read a couple of quotes from it this morning. Surprisingly, defining racism biblically is a challenging task. I assumed that would be easy. Uh, it was not. Uh, my definition, I'm sure, could use improvement, but I'm at least in good company. In, in the opening chapter of Bloodlines, John Piper admits to the same problem. He says, with regard to the term racism, it's possible to get oneself tied in so many knots that it feels hopeless to define. Several years ago, we, meaning the elders of Bethlehem Baptist Church, spent months as a pastoral staff at our church trying to come up with a working definition. I never thought defining a single word could be so difficult. I'm simply going to cut the knot with a decision to work with someone else's definition. At the end of the day, they could not. If you know John Piper, he loves clear definitions. They couldn't come up with a satisfactory one, so they borrowed another church's definition. The definition they settled on was racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over other races. That's not a bad definition. Keeping in in line with our terms and definitions we've been using and developing in this series, I'll give you your first blanks here. Here's my working definition of racism. Unjust thoughts, words, or actions against another based on their race or ethnicity, unjust thoughts, words, or actions against another based on their race or ethnicity. That, of course, um, raises the question of justice. In our first message, the, the, the definition for justice biblically I gave was an injustice is a failure 
to perform my duty to my neighbor. Whatever God has placed upon me to do or not do is just and failing to do either by omission or commission what God requires to my neighbor is unjust. That's, that's the definition. So what we're looking at then, I'm, I'm defining racism as a, as a specific type of injustice, a, a failure to do your duty to your neighbor for a particular reason. Um, there could be other reasons, um, socioeconomic reasons. Here we're looking at reasons based upon race or ethnicity, but even here we've muddied the waters further. Normally, and most people in using race speak primarily of external features, skin color, the, the, the composition of the face, things like that, height. But ethnicity is, is a system of values and customs. And, and, well, I'll just read another quote from Piper because it's, it's challenging because those two are not interchangeable concepts and, and race and ethnicity tend to overlap significantly. Here's Piper's statement on this. Um, In spite of saying the above, I usually use the term race with cultural connotations, meaning ethnicity. In this definition, I am thinking of race primarily in terms of physical features. I'm making a distinction between race and ethnicity. The reason is this. Since ethnicity includes beliefs and attitudes and behaviors, we are biblically and morally bound to value some aspects of some ethnicities over others. Not all cultures are equal. Cultures have values, and as Christians, we need to examine those values biblically and hold fast to the good and abhor the evil. So even though we're to say, in regards to physical makeup and skin tone and and genetic, no one is morally superior um, on the basis of their DNA. Cultures are superior or inferior depending on how you're approaching them, what you're looking at them. One culture may have a a much better value of marriage. Another culture may have a much stronger value for work ethic. Cultures can have values that we can evaluate as Christians. Um, That that also makes this a challenging issue as well. So my definition, racism, unjust, which means a failure to fulfill my duty to my neighbor, my obligations to my neighbor, thoughts, words, or actions against another based on their race or ethnicity. Give you a couple examples of this in the Bible where we see these types of sins come out. In Genesis 19, Lot is rejected by the people of Sodom um, they, because he was a foreigner to them. But they said, Stand back, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with this man than with them. And part of their despising of Lot was he was a foreigner. He was not one of them. In fact, that's the most common framing that I can find of this in the Old Testament is the notion of the foreigner, the one who's not of our tribe, not of our people. Um, so positively, then, God gives this command in Leviticus 19. Um, this is not the text printed on the back of your insert. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You're going to love him. You're going to deal justly with him. That's the basis of my definition. If I were to have one text that tried to put this, this forward, it would be Leviticus 19, 33 to 36. Okay? So that's my definition. Now, sin comes from the heart. So this is one way of looking at injustice, one way of looking at sin, and I'm going to suggest its source in the heart. It comes from proud, self-righteous, or hateful heart. A proud, self-righteous or hateful heart. This is an expression of pride. It's an expression of self-righteousness or an expression of hate from our hearts. Let me, let me try to back that up. You already heard it in the last passage. You shall not wrong a sojourner. Why? Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What's the implicit argument? 
They are like you. You were sojourners. You were a poor, powerless, foreign people. And God set His love on you. God delivered you. And you have to forget that past to start thinking high and mighty of yourself to begin looking down your nose at other sojourners. It's pride. It's self-righteousness. And God reminds them, you too were sojourners. Remember that and deal justly with the sojourner in your midst. Deuteronomy 10.19 has a similar command. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's humility that's going to cause me to love the one who is not like me, the, the foreigner, the stranger, the sojourner, the alien. And it's going to be pride and self-righteousness and self-entitlement that's going to be the root heart cause of my treating an unjust way to my neighbor who is not like me. Okay, Uh, Leviticus 25, 23 also. Listen to this. Now, this this is important because this presses through to the new covenant, not just for Israel's sojourners in Egypt. They continued to be sojourners in the land. Listen to Leviticus 25, 23. Why couldn't an Israelite sell the land permanently? Why did the sales of land keep getting reset? This is amazing. Leviticus 25, 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land is mine, You are strangers and sojourners with me. So not only was Israel strangers and sojourners in Egypt, they continued to be. And under the new covenant, Peter gives this instruction in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you, here's verse 11, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You and I as Christians are aliens, Sojourners and exiles. So these same commands apply to us. Remember, we, from God's perspective, are the other, the strange one, the foreigner. Christ left his kingdom and he came to us. He pitched his tent and tabernacled amongst us. The gospel is the evidence of the good Samaritan par excellence who saw our need, took our burden upon himself, bore our sins on the cross, And if we are those who cherish that, who love that, then that ought to be reflected in our love of the stranger, the foreigner, the other. And our failure to do so will only come from our sense of entitlement and our pride and our hateful hearts. That's that's my definition for racism and where I'm seeing it come from in the heart. Now what I want to do with the rest of this message is try to expose, as I've been trying to think through this, justifications. So that the first blank, the true nature of racism, point number one. Point number two, the false justifications of racism. Because in my definition, I've said it has to be unjust. And for our bigotries and for our um, judgments, we argue they are just. We come up with plausible reasons why I know it is right and fitting that I do this. And so I'm going to try to look at Four lines I could come up with. I'm sure there could be eight more. This isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. But four lines of reasoning, of false justification by which our hearts will tell us we are right, it's fitting, it's appropriate to deal unjustly with our neighbor. And I want to use as a a case study, an example, in all four of these instances, the following. I want to deal with the case of interracial marriage. I'm going to suggest that Nothing would show further and greater peace and accord and mutuality and acceptance between families and peoples than that they would gladly give their sons and daughters in marriage with each other. This is how peace treaties amongst nations during the Middle Ages were settled because of the implicit logic. So I'm going to assume that if you or I would gladly give our sons and daughters to to marry others who, who look and act and live differently than we do, different cultures, different races, different nations, there could be no greater evidence, as we rejoice in that, of us being at peace, us not having a hateful or racist heart. Conversely, I think I would suggest, I guess, the last vestiges, the last holdout for us of racism and prejudice might be in our reluctance, our disappointment, in seeing our sons and daughters marry others than of our tribe and type. So that's going to be my my case study as I go through and look at it. You could also then use that to think of any lesser case 
That makes sense. And as I use this example, I want you to picture um, when I'm talking about intermarriage, in every other respect, the prospective spouse is a godly and good fit. We're dealing with a godly young man or woman. We're dealing with a good complement between the man and the woman. We're dealing with people who are delighted to marry each other. In every other respect, this is a good deal. In every other respect, this is righteous and good. And simply because of the person's race, we would say no. That's going to be my, that's going to be my test case. Uh, and let me start and say, in two weeks, we're going to look at a message of God's glorious purpose in a multi-ethnic a multi-tiered, the rich, the poor, slave and free, male and female, young and old, all tribes, all tongues, all peoples, his glorious purpose in making a people like that for himself. We're to close our series looking at that. And I want to start by saying um, that because of God's purpose through Christ's death on the cross, because he has purchased for himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, because the gospel goes forth, I would consider it an honor and a privilege if the Lord would bring for my sons and daughters husbands and wives who look very differently than we do, that the, the glory of God's purpose in his expanding kingdom could be imaged even in my home and house. So let's look at false justifications of racism. And the first place we've got to start are false theological justifications. The church in America, the, the church in the world, has some guilt, um, some great complicity in racism in the past, and the not-so-distant past. And so we need to start here and recognize that Christians have come up with biblical justifications. Because remember, my definition is it's racist, it's sinful when you're treating, thinking, speaking about your neighbor in an unjust way. And what will cause us to think we're fine in doing it is saying, no, it's right, it's fitting, it's what God intends and so we justify those unjust judgments with theology. So I'll, I'll give you two examples. It could be more, um, but two primary examples. First, and I want you to recognize that these arguments have a prima facie plausibility. I've actually been, for the last two weeks, asking people, okay, how would you refute this? But, but here's the argument made by many Christians as recently as 2000 by Bob Jones University. Bob Jones University on March 3rd removed its policy against interracial dating and marriage that they had introduced in the 1950s. They did not allow blacks to attend until the 70s. The reason they introduced the policy was because in the 50s, an Asian family was upset that their son became engaged to a white woman. They enacted the policy, and they only retracted it as recently as 2000. This is a well-known otherwise conservative Christian school that as recently as March 2nd of 2000, theology was used to justify the forbidding of interracial marriage. And the argument goes something like this. And I want you to recognize there is some prima facie plausibility. It's wrong, but there's some prima facie plausibility. It goes like this. Who was it who separated the peoples into nations and tongues? Was it man's idea or was it God's? God's idea. God did it precisely because the people weren't spreading out and taking dominion. They were of one language. They were unified. And God said they could therefore achieve anything. And so God, to force man to obey the creation mandate to subdue the earth, God to stop and weaken man's power as they worked together in unity, split them into nations and, and tongues and peoples over the face of the earth. He did it for his purposes. And so the argument says, who were you to undo that? Who are you to say it'd be better if, if the nations intermingled, if we just return to that? In fact, you can go so far as to argue, and some do, that it's the Antichrist, ultimately, who will once again unify man around one religion. And, and so the argument was that we need to respect God's divisions. God has separated these things out. This isn't man's doing, and we need to honor that. Stay in your own lane. In fact, wasn't the threat for Israel that they'd be scattered among the nations? They would lose their national identity? Wasn't that something they prized? And if they were unfaithful, God would remove it precisely by dispersing among the peoples? Your blanks here. God divided the nations, and he's the one who forbade intermarriage. Listen to Deuteronomy 7.3. You shall not marry with them, speaking with the inhabitants of Canaan. 
giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. So the argument is God is the one who initiated for his purposes and his glory the divisions of peoples and tribes and tongues. He did it to thwart what would happen if otherwise man were intermingled. And God forbade his people from crossing those boundary lines. That's the argument. It's wrong. It's broken. But that's the argument. Now it's the argument held till March 3rd, 2000. Um, so what's wrong with that argument? A lot. A lot. It's important that we keep reading in Deuteronomy 7, 3. Because we're told why. We're told why the intermarriage was the problem. Here's your blank first. Intermarriage posed a religious danger. Deuteronomy 7, 3, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters or sons. Verse 4, for they would... For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. The, the, the reason given again and again and again is a prohibition against intermarriage among the peoples is religious, so that your heart does not turn from serving the Lord your God. If you turn, turn your Bibles to Numbers 12, it's clear from the Pentateuch itself that God's prohibitions of intermarriage are not absolute. There are racial intermarriages in the Old Testament that God approves. And so I would then take his, his commandment against idolatry and false religion to be the governing factor. It explains also how Ruth can marry Boaz and it's righteous and good. Rahab can marry into Israel. But in Numbers 12, and I, I'm very grateful to John Piper and his book for highlighting this. I'm, I'm piggybacking off of what he um, pointed out very helpfully. Okay, um, we see Miriam and Aaron rise up to object to Moses. Okay, so let's read the first few verses here. Numbers twelve. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, "Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us also?" They did not like the inequality of outcome, or even though they were big ups in Israel, Moses was the, the top prophet, and they wanted a, a more equal redistribution of prophetic office. And there's more going on here than their objection to the Cushite woman, but there's not less. So we know what really is going on is they are envious of Moses' exclusive position. But they're looking for grounds to bring a complaint, which means his marriage to the Cushite woman is something they really do object to. Otherwise, they'd wait till they had a good example. What's a Cushite woman? The woman, a Cushite woman, the same word translated here, Cushite, is the word translated in Jeremiah 13:23. Can the leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian his skin? In fact, let me read to you a little bit about who the Cushites were um, from Piper's book. As he cites, J. Daniels Hayes writes in his book, From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race, that Cush is used regularly to refer to the area south of Egypt and above the cataracts of the Nile where a black African civilization flourished for over 2,000 years. Thus, it's quite clear that Moses marries a black African woman. The fact that the text in Jeremiah highlights the darkness of skin. This is a, a, a feature, a notable feature. So Moses marries this woman, and they use it as grounds to object. Well, the Lord hears and is displeased. We keep reading. Suddenly, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down on a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous. Like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Notice God's judgment. Now, he understands primarily this is a power grab. 
But what's the judgment? What's notable at the Cushite woman? The dark skin. Miriam is made leprous like snow. It's highlighting the color. It's as if God is saying to Miriam, Miriam, you think lighter skin is superior? You have a problem with Moses marrying a woman with darker skin? Here, I'll give you some really, really light skin. You you see the judgment here? And John Piper writes this saying further, God says not a critical word against Moses for marrying a black Cushite woman, but when Miriam criticizes God's chosen leader for his marriage, God strikes her skin with leprosy. If you ever thought black was a biblical symbol for uncleanness, be careful how you use such an idea. A white uncleanness could come upon you. So we get straight from the book of Numbers. This is fine. God vindicates his prophet. Presumably this woman is a worshiper of Yahweh, the Lord. And so she is acceptable. So your first blank. Intermarriage posed a religious danger. So the New Testament corollary would not be don't marry people from different tribes, races, and tongues, but Christians need to marry believers. Like it said in 1 Corinthians um, 6, no, 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. Your second blank, uh, and I've got to pick up pace here. <laughs> oh, man, I do I have to pick up pace. Is, uh, well, we'll just go along. Um, Jesus descended from two notable foreign women. And, and Mar- Matthew highlights this reality. In Matthew's genealogy, he only references five women, one of whom is, is Jesus' mother Mary. The other four are all national embarrassments. Let me read, read them to you. Matthew 1, 3 to 6. Matthew is absolutely highlighting this to a nationalistic, fiercely proud people. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law. That's embarrassing. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Adimadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Do you notice how Matthew's not mentioning the mothers in any other cases? But Rahab, the prostitute from Canaan, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, the Moabitess. Nobed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There's the other fourth woman. So in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, apart from Mary, four women and only four women are referenced. Tamar, with her incestuous relationship with her father-in-law, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. Our Savior does not descend from absolutely pure Jewish stock. And that's a good thing. Matthew's highlighting this. Matthew is highlighting this. And so there are historic examples in Israel's history of foreigners joining themselves to the people of Israel, marrying and becoming part of the Messianic line. Okay? So that first Argument. Well, it's God who divided the nations, and God forbade intermarriage. He did it for religious purposes. The text is full of clear exceptions. The, the New Testament equivalent would be believers need to marry believers. Um, okay, second theological justification. I've got to move quickly here. Noah cursed Canaan to be a slave to his brothers. If you remember, after Noah got off the ark, he became a man of the earth, planted a vineyard, he got drunk. He passed out naked in his tent. And his youngest son comes in and laughs. And he goes and tells his brothers. And his brothers show honor to his father. They walk in the tent backwards with a blanket and they lay it over him. And when Noah awaked, awoke, verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So how does, how does this argument work? This is more of an argument that came up in response and in order to try to justify American slavery. You can imagine the cognitive dissonance as children are being taught the Bible in Christian homes while all around them, every black 
man and woman they know, works for free as a slave. And they could say to Dad, Dad, why is this? How is this right? And the father could say, these are the descendants of Canaan. Noah had cursed them. And this is how God ordained that they would be a servant of their brothers. And the, and the argument's made because in the table of, of Canaan's children, some, many of them, in fact, do go to settle in Africa. Canaan fathers a number of peoples who would have dark skin. And so the argument was, oh, okay, this is how God ordered it. This is just the curse of Noah. These are the justifications Christians made to delay emancipation, to delay equal rights. It's wicked. Um, So what's wrong with this argument? First, not all Canaan's descendants have dark skin. If you read through the list, I'll read through some of them. Many of them settle in the Middle East, in the land of, get this, Canaan. Canaan, verse 15, fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites. What stronghold was the city of Jerusalem prior to David's capturing it? It was a Jebusite stronghold. Right? The Girgashites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Archites, the worst of all, the Sinites. Okay, that's a joke. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. <laughs> the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Harmathites, and afterward the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. So, true enough, some of Canaan's descendants settle in Africa, develop dark skin. Not all of them, and not all people with dark skin are descendants from Canaan. It's just a false equivocation. Moreover, the text of the Bible points us to fulfillment of this curse. I don't know it's full fulfillment, but I could found at least three passages that link up, I think, with this notion. And we see its fulfillment applied to the conquest of Canaan. Applied to the conquest of Canaan. Remember, Joshua goes in. You could even, I was talking to Pastor Daniel, they settled the, the, the town of Sodom and Gomorrah come from descendants of Canaan. And even the judgment there might be possibly part of it. But listen to this passage in Joshua. You remember the Gibeonites. They heard about Israel coming in. And they pretended to be from far, far away. And they got moldy bread. And they got worn out shoes. And they came and said, make a peace treaty with us that you won't kill us. Because Joshua had been commanded not to make a treaty with any of the peoples of Canaan. They were to put them to the edge of the sword and wipe them out. And Joshua did not inquire of the Lord. And he hastily made this treaty. And afterwards he found out he had been deceived. And he says this in Joshua 9.22, Why did you deceive us, saying, we, far from far, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants or slaves, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So he curses them with a curse similar to Noah's curse to Canaan, and I think we're meant to see in part, here's some of that fulfillment of Noah's curse. These people will be slaves, servants of Israel because of their treachery and deception. So this curse applied to the conquest of Canaan. And then again, listen to Judges chapter 1. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. You think anyone reading from Genesis might see the connection there? The Canaanites, Canaan's who Noah cursed, he put them to be forced labor. Or listen to what Solomon did in 1 Kings 9, 20-21. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hizzites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, those are the descendants of Canaan, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, and the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves. So three times in the text, that's probably most clear, I see indicators pointing me to see the fulfillment of this curse in the conquest and occupation of the land of Israel. And I don't know the fullness of it, but to jump from there to thousands of years later, a different people on a different continent to try to justify chattel slavery in America is, is a terrible, terrible misuse of Scripture. And yet people were made complacent by hearing these plausible arguments. Well, I guess if this is the curse of Noah, who are we to object and it was wicked. These are the types of false theological justifications men have given themselves to justify racial injustice. Okay, we got, we got to move. Next, false naturalistic justification. False naturalistic justification. The fundamental argument here being one nation or race is supreme. 
This, this comes out of a naturalistic understanding. Uh, if you believe man evolved over time from lesser and lesser animals, then it's only natural for you to start considering which race, which people are most evolved and which race, which people are closest to animals. It, it strikes me as strange that so many today are obsessed with the sin of racism, with human rights, and yet if you're coming at it from a naturalistic, Darwinistic perspective, there is absolutely no ground or basis for such a thing. I, I was thrown out of a sixth grade class in social studies um, for making this point. I was probably being a punk and a jerk. I doubt I was speaking the truth in love. But Professor Schaffnett was teaching about, from their theory, how you know, so many million years ago the first humanoids appeared in Africa and then they appeared here. And finally, the most recent appearance of man was the Caucasoid, the European in Europe. And I raised my hand and I said, then doesn't that mean necessarily the Caucasoid, according to your theory, is the most advanced the most fit, and ought to dominate and rule the others. Because the whole notion of the theory of evolution is the newer models take over and get rid of the older models. That's the whole, that's the whole notion. Charles Darwin himself, I'm going to read you a quote from Darwin, freely admits this. This is the consistent, ab, I'm, I'm not strawmanning this, this is the absolutely consistent application of Darwin's theory. Here's quote Darwin from Origin of the Species. Darwin's writing about how he disapproves of the social measures to protect the weak, the poor, and the powerless because he wants them to die to purify and strengthen the race. With savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated, and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. So he's saying if left alone, the weak die off, and those who remain are genetically strong. With civilized men, on the other hand, they do their utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. There is reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who, from a weak constitution, would formerly have succumbed to smallpox. He doesn't approve. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. Vaccinations, protecting the weak and the sick, the imbecile, those less fit, is injurious to the race of man. It's completely consistent with the theory. Hitler is being completely consistent when he's trying to find his Ubermensch and then try to establish them as the dominant strain. It's surprising how soon a want of care or care wrongly directed leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. End quote. Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, more from the fit, less from the unfit. This is consistently applied Darwinism. And so if you come at it from this perspective, it's consistent and reasonable within that viewpoint to start evaluating people, more fit, less fit, more evolved, less evolved. And you're going to oppose interracial marriage because you, want to, you don't want your strong stock marrying your weak stock. You want to strengthen the race. You want those with strong genes, strong intellect, strong abilities to intermarry, just further strengthen the race. And you want those who are weak to die off. And the reason I bring this up isn't just to throw stones at, at Darwinism, but to make it clear that we as Christians have a foundation for human rights and human dignity. The naturalist does not other than it pleases them or is pragmatic. You see, unlike Darwin's theory, Paul insists, God insists, all peoples came from one man. There's your first blank. All nations descend directly from one man. All nations descend from one man. Genesis 1.27, so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. Paul makes this point emphatically in Acts chapter 17 at Mars Hill. He doesn't read Genesis 1 as poetry, but as history. He says, he made from one man every nation of mankind 
to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, we value people not because of how smart they are, not, not, not for the final value. I mean, if, if you're looking for someone to fix your, your plumbing, you're going to value their skill in plumbing. But as, as regards to human worth and dignity, foundational value, absolute value, the value of man doesn't come from what we can achieve or do, but the fact that we bear the stamp in the image of God. It's, it's God's value that gives us value. So even, as Darwin calls it, the imbecile has the same dignity and value you or I have because he bears God's image. Next point, all people are image bearers. All people are image bearers. Why, why do we put murderers to death? Because they kill nice, innocent people? No, because they disrespect the image of God and the one they kill. Listen to Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The reason we ought to, it is just and right to put convicted murderers to death is because of the grave insult and sin they do against God's image, not against fundamentally their victim. And so as Christians, we can believe in the equality of man, the equal dignity and value of man, because we understand all men came from one man and one woman, and all of us equally bear God's image. There's no such foundation in naturalism. And so we have an answer for this. We of all people need to recognize that our neighbor, wherever they're from, whatever language they speak, bears God's image and has a dignity we must respect. James chapter 2, 3 makes the same point. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So, false naturalistic justification. Next, false tribal justification. And here, the lie is my enemy is not my neighbor, my enemy is not my neighbor. And I think we could broaden this out beyond racism to all sorts of justifications for injustice. The notion being, once I recognize somebody that I'm in hostility to, even if it's legitimate hostility, legitimate animus, all of a sudden we tell ourselves, because they're the enemy, I need not treat them justly. I need not respect the image of God in them. We we do this all the time with our political opponents They're the bad guys. They're the pro-choicers. They're the liberals. Therefore, I can mock them and scorn them and deride them and judge them without evidence because they're the enemy. And when you're treating the enemy, that's okay. In Jesus' day, this same teaching went around. Jesus, in Matthew 5, 43 to 44, says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the Pharisees were teaching the people. You love your neighbor, you love your own, you love your tribe, and you hate your enemy. Jesus had something different to say. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we must act justly, there's the blank, towards all men, even with those against which we war. Even with those against which we war. Let me try to give you a practical example here. I want you to imagine a man who is fighting in the front lines of World War II just before the armistice, just before the ceasefire, just before peace was made. And during those final months of the war, I believe, I believe that war was a just war, righteously, rightly, he could endeavor with all of his skill and all of his being to effectively kill enemy combatants. I I think so. He could do that justly, rightly, with a clean conscience. Um, Then peace is made. And lo and behold, a few months later, his daughter comes home with a German young man she's in love with. He's a godly man. He took no part in the atrocities of the Nazis. He was part of the underground church, part of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's movement. He's not guilty of the sins of his people. But you can still imagine the struggle this father might have, especially if his comrades and his own family members died in the war. And yet he is required biblically to treat that man justly. That's the temptation. We can simultaneously 
have legitimate animus and grievance against the people. The Jews had legitimate complaints and grievance against Rome's occupation and treatment of them. Pilate had mingled the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. He had done an abomination in their worship. They were mistreated, misrespected, and yet we know Jesus encountered many centurions who were honorable, upright men. And you can imagine the challenge it might be for a Jewish boy or girl to suggest marriage to one of those centurions what challenge it would be. But Jesus, within his own disciples, mixed a zealot and a tax collector. He showed us that in his new people, in his redemptive work, he intended for former enemies to be at peace. That means I can have legitimate animus. I can be opposed to. I want to see the pro-choice agenda collapse. Those who who support it, who promote it, I have hostility towards. Yet, person by person, case by case, I must treat justly even those who are part of a group I oppose. That, that's the challenge for us. I'll give you an example in the, in the Scripture in 2 Samuel 21, 1-2. through Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. So this famine continues. And if you read Deuteronomy, it's clear. If Israel's faithful, there's not supposed to be famines. So David says, what gives? What have we done wrong? And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Remember the Gibeonites? Saul tried to do a genocide. They drop out of the biblical narrative about this point. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. Now listen to this. Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and of Judah. It was nationalism. Loyalty from my tribe. These people deceived us. These people humiliated us. These people led us into sin as we made a Sinful treaty with them that we shouldn't have made. And so Saul says, you know what? Because you tricked us and because you did this, I'm going to wipe you out. In a zeal for Israel. And the Lord says, ooh, you broke the covenant. And that's not just. And so God disciplines Israel for three years of famine because of the injustice of Saul in his nationalistic zeal. We can justify so much injustice against those we deem our enemy. It's really simple. Once they're our enemy, then I'll forward the meme. Once they're the enemy, I'll tell the joke. Hillary doesn't need just treatment. It sounds like something she'd do, so I'll pass it on. Right? We just get mad when our guys are treated unjustly. No, we have one set of scales. One sets of balances. And so we must act justly towards all men, even those against which we war. Another thing to remember, turn to Ezekiel 18. This is the last passage I'll ask you to turn to. Um, Ezekiel 18. This is an important principle to remember as we distinguish our relationship to groups and individuals. Um, Use the example of the German young man. The German young man was part of a nation we were at war with. And yet, it would be wrong for that father to condemn that young man inherently by his association for the sins of the German people. That would be unrighteous and unjust. We read read this in, in Ezekiel 18. Pick it up in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores the debt to his, 
the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with garments, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice and executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and the needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abominations, lends it interest, takes profit. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor does he defile his neighbor's wife, nor does he oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes, he shall not die for his father's iniquity, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, did what was not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. The father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. It is fundamentally unjust to condemn the son for the sins of the father. So if my imaginary father, considering whether or not to let his daughter marry this German young man, who in every other respect, he's godly, they're a good compliment, they're in love. No, no, you're guilty of the sins of the Nazis. That is unjust, if that's his reasoning in his heart. It's unjust, unrighteous, to punish the children for the sins of the parents. And that principle, I think, can be applied in numerous areas. The soul that sins shall die. And that's even true along with Exodus 34. Remember, Moses goes up on the mount. He meets with God. God tells him his covenant name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yes, I know it says that. And that German young man may well have died in a firebombing four months earlier because he is part of the nation of Germany. And while Germany was at war and his people were at war, the sins of his people may cause bombs to drop on his head. There were children in the land of Canaan when Israel made conquest who had not yet partaken in their parents' sins. There are temporal punishments, temporal consequences to being born into a bad family, a wicked people. Surely there are. But God makes it clear when it comes to moral guilt and moral condemnation, it's person by person, case by case. And it is wicked and it is unjust to take an individual of a group, independent of their culpability, independent of their contribution to an issue, and judge them morally guilty for the sins of the group. That is wicked. God abhors it. Ezekiel 18 is clear. Finally, false preferential justification. This is the most subtle and pernicious. Before the justification is that person is part of the group that I am opposed to. That person is part of the group with whom I have hostility. And I'll judge them guilty of the sins of that group. And that's wicked. Here, there's no animus. There's no conflict. There's simply partiality, preference. You know what? I got no beef with those peoples, but I really just want to focus on my peoples. And you know... I mean, it wouldn't be wrong if my kids married someone from another culture, but it would certainly make things a lot easier. We'd have a lot less problems. Just, just be a lot simpler. If they could just marry some people from our tribe and our people. That, that's what this looks like. Um, it's, it's partiality, preference. 
But we've got to be very careful. We have a tremendous freedom in the new covenant. Um, but we're warned. Here's your first blank. We must not use our liberty as a covering for evil. This is tough because this is the hardest one to prove. Why does someone make their decisions? In one respect, I'd, I'd freely grant a father's right to, to, to deny the request of his daughter to marry a man. I, I'd, I'd say that's in, inviolate for whatever his reasoning would be. Um, Paul talks about a father giving his daughter and not giving his daughter. He doesn't sin if he doesn't give his daughter in 1 Corinthians. And, and the Old Testament is clear on this as well. But if the reasons for doing that are simply these types of preferences, I'd suggest, again, they're unjust. If his daughter, if his son has found a godly, suitable complement and a desire is to marry, and the only reason he forbade it was, it's going to make family gatherings messy, man. It's going to be, rather than joining in, I said at the beginning, there's an honor, a privilege to modeling and imaging God's marvelous purpose and making a people for himself from every tribe and nation and tongue. Rather than getting excited about that, won't this be wonderful for the world to see how the gospel unites people? You're worried about the barbecue and how tricky that's going to be. This is a problem that we can face, and we do injustice when because of our partiality and preferences, we fail to fulfill our duty to our neighbor. In Acts chapter 6, the creation of the office of deacons happened precisely because of this. Listen, listen to this. It's so easy. We just are so focused on our group and our people, we neglect and justify neglecting our duty and responsibilities to our neighbor. Acts 6.1. In those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the day of the distribution. And there's no indication this is intentional. There's no indication this is avarice because as soon as the church is made aware of it, they fix it. There's no, there's no uh, having to work it out. It seems pretty simple. In the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish widows would be the ones that the natives would be most concerned got taken care of. They simply didn't know about or didn't care about the Greek-speaking widows. Somebody else will take care of them. We're going to take care of my people. And that was wrong. And they recognized it was wrong. It's interesting that in their response to this, in their repentance to this, the names of all the deacons they chose are Hellenistic Greek names, suggestive they wanted to overcompensate the other way. Uh, We can't be certain. The church erred in neglecting the Greek widows. And James chapter 2 warns us, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you show partiality, verse 9 says, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 1 Timothy 5.21, listen to this charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. When it comes to the administration of our faith and our living in the church, before the holy angels of God, Paul says, do nothing prejudging, do nothing from partiality. That's a strong exhortation. I'm sure there are other lines of reasoning that we might use to justify our unjust treatment of our neighbor. These are the four that came to my mind most readily. So I just encourage you to ask the Lord to examine yourself. Ask the Lord to, to examine your, to reveal yourself so that you might examine your heart. You can pray the prayer of Psalm 139. Lord, test me if there's any wicked way in me. Search me. And we want to Look at this righteously. Remember, Jesus said, judge with just judgments. That includes ourself. And, and I would have you free of false guilt. There's a lot of things I think many today would claim you're guilty of by virtue of your skin color that I would say, no, I don't, I don't think you're necessarily guilty of that. That doesn't mean you're innocent. We judge ourselves by God's standard. J- judge yourself by truth. And where there's repentance needed, repent. Where there's confession needed, confess. And where there's not, be bold and courageous as a lion. Examine your hearts. Judge with right judgment, not the world's. And cling to Christ, the ultimate good Samaritan, the ultimate other who came to us, the weak, the powerless, the foreigner. And he lived among us. He loved us. He did not look down his nose at us. And he bore our sins on the cross. 
We have the wonderful, glorious opportunity to model that type of love, that love that crosses boundaries, that love that goes to the other. Or we can be self-righteous and proud and content and comfortable and tell ourselves convenient lies that justify our injustice towards our neighbor. I just pray that God would give us the grace to see clearly, to act clearly, and to do justly. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a difficult topic. Help us to judge with just and right judgment, not to um, simply adopt the world's standards and definitions, but to search your word for yours. Where there is sin, where there is prejudice, where there is injustice in our heart, Lord, would you expose it? Would you reveal it? Would you grant us repentance? And where there is not, let us be um, not fearful and shrinking, but bold as lions. Um, Ultimately, Lord God, you are the one who judge, and it's before you that we stand or fall. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.